view, uh, those of you that uh, are physically able to do so, if you would please stand up. And would you find three people somewhere around you? You can move all, anywhere and around the sanctuary. And for those that can't stand up, please move to them. At least three, a minimum of three people. And would you please say the words to them this morning? You are loved. And you can hug, you can handshake, you can do whatever, but say, You are loved. All right. I don't even have to uh, have prophetic insight to know that. Way too many of you hear that way too little. And uh, you need to hear that this morning. Not only as just some sort of exercise and transition to a sermon, but because it's really true. It's really true. I'm going to ask you some questions this morning. You don't have to answer them out loud, just... Think about it. Do you sometimes question your self-worth? Do you wonder if your contribution to life is of any value? Do you base your self-esteem on performance or on your physical appearance? Are you easily affected by the circumstances around you? Do you compare yourself to others? Do you hide your true feelings? Do you pretend to be something you're not? Do you want to live a simpler life but feel thwarted by society's demands? Do you feel as if you're on a treadmill and desperately want to find a way off? Do you cling to things that lost importance and meaning long ago? Are you afraid to take risks? Are you seeking adventure in illicit relationships? Do you wonder why life doesn't have more to offer? Are you often motivated by fear? Do you cling to the safety of familiar relationships? Do you try to impress those around you with evidence of your worth? Have you lost your zest for living? Are you tempted to spend more time in a fantasy world than face reality? Are your decisions and actions governed by what people might think? Have you turned to drugs or alcohol to cope with life? Do you feel that your creativity is gone? Have you lost your excitement about tomorrow? Well, if you happen to answer yes to any of those questions, and um, if none of you answered yes to any of those questions, I mean, if they were all no, please see me after service because I would really like to meet you. And uh... This morning we are continuing a series which we began last Sunday and a series that will continue through the end of this month. It's entitled, What 
one month to live. And the simple question we're asking is this, what if, what if you only had one month to live? How might that affect your priorities, your perspective, your plans? What might that do to the way you live your life here and now? That last question that I asked was, have you lost your excitement about tomorrow if you only had 30-odd tomorrows? What would that do? Last week, the title of the message was Living the Dash. All of us have a birth date and a death date. Usually those are the things that go on our memorial stone. And in between there's a dash, and it's the dash that's important. Just this week, we lost one of our part of our body here at Bethel Christian Fellowship, Sherry Radke. Some of you may remember Sherry. She's been in and out for the last several years, out of a fair amount because of uh, physical uh, challenges. She uh, had been fighting liver cancer for six, seven years. Um, if you saw her, you'd probably recognize her. She was often carrying an oxygen bottle, at least towards the end, and she had long black hair, and sometimes she had long red hair, and sometimes she had long black and red hair. Sherry had spunk and uh, have had the privilege over the last couple of months to spend several times with her in her home with her husband, Skip, and was with he and their son, Lee, and their son, Adam, from Australia is coming in, and the funeral is on Tuesday at 2 right here. And when you're walking with somebody through the valley of the shadow of death, it brings these things very much into focus. This morning, the title of our message is Love Completely. Love Completely. And if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, would you please use the Bible located in front of you? It will... Make me very happy, if you would. And turn to page 863, I believe, right towards the end. First John is right before Second John, interestingly enough, and before Third John, right after Peter, and right towards the very end, right before you get towards the book of Revelation. So... This is a very familiar passage this morning, and I'm going to, um, as you find it and read along with me, I'm actually going to uh, read the scripture from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message, some of these, it's such a familiar passage that sometimes when uh, you hear it in a fresh way or with fresh words, it kind of makes it 
you know, gives just a little bit of an um, opportunity for you to, to hear it in a new way. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love, so you can't know Him if you don't love. This is how God showed His love for us. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. My dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. No one has seen God, ever. But if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us and His love becomes complete in us. Perfect love. This is how we know we're living steadily and deeply in Him and He in us. He's given us life from His life, from His very own Spirit. Also, we've seen for ourselves and continue to state openly that the Father sent His Son as Savior of the world. Everyone who confesses that Jesus is God's Son participates continuously in an intimate relationship with God. We know it so well. We've embraced it heart and soul, this love that comes from God. God is love. When we take a permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house because at home and mature in us so that we are free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ's. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, are going to love. Love and be loved. First, we were loved. Now, we love. He loved us first. Mm. All right. We'll stop there. So, what I would like us to grasp this morning is two simple, very simple foundational truths. But if we will grasp these truths... All of the questions that I began with this morning can and will be answered. And so those questions that I asked do have an answer and it's found in the passage that we unpacked here or we're going to unpack this morning. Again, loving completely. The first truth is this. Love comes from God. Love comes from God. Now, all of you sitting here this morning are saying, well, I knew that. Well, did you? Do you? Do you not just 
know about it, but do you truly know it? If you think about it, well, the Trinity, think about the Trinity for a moment, which is always a hard concept to grasp because we usually put it all up inside of our head and try to figure out, okay, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, how do I get my head around that? And so there's all kinds of wonderful ways of illustrating that. You've heard many of them, the egg and the water and the different ways of trying to figure out and trying to give a metaphor for what that is. I would say that at the very essence of the concept of Trinity is the very thing that we're talking about today. At the very essence of what we talk about when we talk about the Trinity is the fact that God is in an, in an eternal Dynamic, interpersonal relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. The Father loves the Spirit. There's this ongoing interaction and dynamic of love that's at the very essence of who God is. Listen to me carefully here. Love is not one of God's many activities that He does when He's not doing other things. All of God's activity is loving. When He creates, He creates in love. When He rules... He rules in love. When He judges, He judges in love. Everything of who God is and everything of what He does proceeds out of love. It is an, it's an expression of His very nature. God is love. Now, that doesn't mean love is God. <laughs> Don't confuse it. But God is love. It is the very essence of His nature, of who He is. And so love proceeds from God. And it proceeds from God through grace. Grace is the very expression of God's love. Verse 9, 1 John 4. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now this concept of grace, and I've mentioned this many times in the last 20 years, and I will mention it and try to once again penetrate your heart with this truth. Grace is the defining distinction between Christianity and all other religions. Christianity really is unique. In a pluralistic, 
world in which we live in, and in particularly in a society such as ours, which is extremely pluralistic, the voices of society around us keep telling us, you can't say that. Christianity, Jesus is one of the paths towards God, but there are many others. Well, the fact and the reality is this. Every other path will not ultimately lead you to God because every other path leads us towards a God who loves us conditionally. And so our religious experience becomes about what can I do to make myself acceptable to God? If I will do these various things, then God perhaps might accept me. But the fact of the matter is, there is nothing. Say nothing. Nothing Nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. We can't. There's nothing we can do. But thank God, He has already done it through Christ. He took the initiative. He loves us unconditionally, sending us Christ the Son, as Norm was sharing earlier, to make us welcome into the Father. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Not one of the ways, but I am the way, the truth, and life. Because again, every other religion begins with us. Christianity begins with God. What He has done, then love comes from Him. The initiative is all His. His agape love is utterly different than any other kind of human love or any other religious construct of love. Is this anybody make sense? Catching all right. This is essential Christian 101. But here's the deal. We forget or we somewhere know it. Me. Faith wants to. Because of this love that God has for us. Then, verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. This requires repentance. It requires from us a turning away from our own ability to please God. I've tried it on my own. It isn't working. And then receive and rely on Jesus' work which has pleased God forever. I'm going to give you four words and I want you to, if you can, write them down or... Remember them. They all begin with the same letter to make it easier for you. All right. Here we go. Fact. The fact is, God loves you. That's a fact. It doesn't really matter what you 
Think about that. How you, it, it, it isn't changeable. It isn't adaptable. It isn't something that, well, yeah, he loves me today, but he doesn't love, you know, it's not picking off flower petals. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves you. That's a fact. Unchangeable. But if he really knew what I was like, he knows what you're like. He knows exactly what you're like. And you know what? He loves you. You are loved. That's a fact. Unchangeable, unassailable fact. Y'all can shout anytime. I mean, this is good. <laughs> Very good news. Faith simply grabs hold of and relies, begins to lean into and onto that love. One of the ways that I, you know, helps me, because I'm a picture person, helps me think about that. Think about taking a string and you throw it up to God. Okay, He loves me and I'm going to take a string of faith and I throw it up to Him. And I'm holding on now to the love of God. But it's only by a string. But then... Over time, I learn, I throw up another string and I, I, I twist it around the first and then I get another string up there and, I, and pretty soon, over time, over a life that is lived in the context of the love of God, that string becomes a rope. Something that holds us. When you're not feeling it. Which, by the way, is the third word. It's feelings. Now, this is where we live, and particularly those of us that are wired as feeling folks, we live a lot of our life right here. How many times have I heard people say, well, I just don't feel like God loves me? If I had a nickel for every time I heard that? If I had a nickel for every time I said it in my own heart, I'd be a very wealthy man. I just don't feel like God loves me. Well, back to point A. The fact is, he does. And faith is appropriating that in spite of my feelings. And eventually, hopefully, yes, my feelings do periodically catch up with the fact. Hello. And the result of all of this is freedom. Listen to Ken Davis, and Marie, if you want to make your way up, that'd be great. Ken Davis um, writes this on faith. He says, I've met many sincere Christians who doubt that Christianity works. They offer as evidence their own inability to live righteously. All their lives, they have tried to prove that they are good Christians. And all of their lives, they've failed to live up to their own expectations, let alone God's. Satan loves to miss manipulate this misconception to paralyze believers. He points out our temper, our selfishness, our impure motives and thoughts, our struggle with alcohol, our conflict with a spouse or a child. And then he mocks us. If Christ is so powerful, why do you continue to struggle with sin? The answer is simple. We're sinners. Why should this come as a shock? It's old news, over 2,000 years old. Our sinfulness is the reason that God sacrificed His Son. We say we believe this, but when instead... 
of accepting His forgiveness. We try to prove that we deserve it. We call our own belief of the Gospel into question and we respond to Satan's mockery by determining to do better next time. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, I'll never do that again. That's a prayer that is often prayed more than once about the same thing we said we'd never do again. The truth is we are prone to doing that thing, whatever it is, over and over again until the day we die. Is there no hope for us then? God forbid. The power of Christ and the power of Christ alone can give us victory over sin. But that victory will only be realized when we admit that our own efforts at righteousness are in vain and that we are powerless without Him. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I'm in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Rather than focusing on ourselves, either our own self-effort or on our sin, we need to forget ourselves and focus on Christ and His righteousness. Christ is the source of our freedom from sin. The Apostle Paul understood this when he wrote, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. When we waste our time trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we don't act as if we understand this truth. And we all end up with, all we end up with is broken bootstraps. Society avoids confronting the sinful nature of man because of the belief that this idea diminishes human worth. If there was no God or if God were not a loving and forgiving God, then society's assessment would be correct. But there is a forgiving God. And our unworthiness only magnifies the value that His sacrifice placed upon our lives. Our value stems not from what we've done, but from what He has done despite what we've done. And the person who avoids confronting and acknowledging his or her sinful nature will find it difficult to truly experience God's forgiveness to whatever degree we believe we are deserving of God's grace. To that same degree, we diminish His grace. His grace is there to bring us freedom. All right. Thank you, Marie. That is, not only does love come from God, but we are called to love one another. We are called to love one another. Listen again to the words in 1 John. Verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Verse 15, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. God's love originates in God, manifested in Christ, and it's completed in us, his people. We can't come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. Let me say that again. We cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. It's not optional. God's love provides both the reason and the resources for becoming a loving person. Now, very quickly... Let's look at a couple of ways that that gets expressed. First of all, through acceptance. Acceptance 
is receiving one another. Romans 15, 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I want to ask a question. How many of you were perfect when Christ accepted you? So how many people around you are perfect? Accept them. Don't compare. When we compare, it leads to criticism or competition. And don't try to control, because that simply leads to manipulation or intimidation. We receive one another. Rather than trying to change them, cherish them for who they are. Now, it's Mother's Day, so I want to talk to moms for a minute about us guys to help you understand us just a little bit more. (laughs) To better understand and accept us. If something we said could be interpreted two different ways and one of those ways makes you sad or angry, we meant the other one. (laughs) We always mean the other one. Just count on that. Please learn to work the toilet seat. If it's up, put it down. When we have to go somewhere, anything you wear is fine. We really don't have an opinion. Christopher Columbus didn't need directions, neither do we. Right, guys? You're not lost as long as you're moving. We are not mind readers and we never will be. Our lack of mind reading ability is not proof of how little we care about you. We do a lot of other things to prove how little we care. But it's not that. Okay, let's go back to point one about the ways that we say things. And let me build on that just a moment. When a man says you wouldn't understand, it's just a guy thing. What he really means is there is no rational thought pattern behind this. When a man says, hey, can I help with dinner? What he really means is, why isn't my dinner on the table yet? (laughs) When a man says, "Uh uh-huh, or sure, yes, dear, what he really means is absolutely nothing. That's just a conditioned response that he says, and there's really nothing going on inside of his head. When a man says, well, that's interesting, dear, what he really means is, are you still talking? (laughs) When a man says, I can't find it, what he really means is it didn't fall into my outstretched hands, and therefore I have no idea where it could possibly be. (laughs) just a little help for you ladies on mother's day to accept us yes (laughs) it's really scary and true all right acceptance means receiving one another forgiveness means releasing one another you can't love and not forgive If you don't forgive, you're not loving. If you hang on to the coal of bitterness, the only one getting burned is you. 
I've shared this story many times. Let me just remind you of the picture. Corey Tenboom. After her uh, time in the concentration camps, when she came out, she met up one, with one of her old guards and saw him. And she didn't know what to do. And so she went to her pastor and said, how can I possibly forgive this man? And her pastor took her outside of the church building and pointed up to where the bell tower of the church was. This, of course, was many years ago. And he says, when the sexton comes and he pulls on the rope to ring the bell, he pulls on the rope for a series of pulls and the bell rings for a series of times. And then there comes a point when he lets go of the rope. And when he lets go of the rope, the bell still rings but it gradually rings less frequently and more softly until it is still. Forgiveness is like letting go of the rope. Oh, you will still hear the bell for a season, but it will be less frequent and it will be less loud until finally it is stilled. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiveness is releasing that personal judgment that you have. It is a decision, not a feeling. It's a choice that we make. Third, it means commitment. Loving one another means commitment. That means remaining with one another. We live in an instantaneous and we live in a recyclable, reusable, re-whatever society where everything simply is, um, is basically built to be thrown away. And in the same way that we do that with our possessions, unfortunately, we often do that with our relationships. But loving one another means being committed to one another. Through the hard times, through the good times, through the tension times, and through the peaceful times. It's a commitment. Did you hear what Marie talked about when she talked about how much she is cherishing and has learned to cherish community. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Jerry Cook, writing on commitment, says this, Today the Church of Jesus Christ needs to make a bold commitment to love people and then dedicate itself to fulfilling that commitment. Our whole lifestyle should tell people, if you come around here, we're going to love you. No matter who you are or what you've done or how you look, smell, or behave, we're going to love you. We must remember that the word for love here is agape. Agape love first exists, then it affects the emotions. For God so loved the world that He sat in heaven and had warm feelings. No, that's nonsense. God so loved the world that he gave. That's it. Agape is a volitional commitment to another that motivates us to act on his or her behalf. Every time you find a corresponding action to the concept of agape, it's a giving action. 
Furthermore, agape involves the kind of giving that can't be compensated. That concept of love is quite foreign in our culture. The mentality of this world leads us to love and give only when there's reason to assume that our love will be reciprocated. This reciprocity is tested carefully during a getting acquainted time. If things look promising, if our approach meets with acceptance and response, we risk a bit further and a friendship is established. In the kingdom of God, we first love, then we move into acquaintance. In this love, we first get acquainted and then we might love Sometimes. As a result, most people have many acquaintances and a few friends, but they're dying from a lack of love. Love is a commitment and operates independently of what we feel or don't feel. We need to extend this love to everyone who comes into our church. Sister, I want you to know I'm committed to you. You'll never knowingly suffer at my hands. I'll never say or do anything knowingly to hurt you. I'll always in every circumstance seek to help you and support you. If you're down and I can lift you up, I'll do that. Anything I have that you need, I'll share with you. And if need be, I'll give it to you. No matter what I find out about you or no matter what happens in the future, either good or bad, my commitment to you will never change and there's nothing you can do about it. You don't have to respond. I love you and that's what it means. A church that can make that commitment to every person is a church that's learning to love and a church that will be a force for God. Love. By commitment and finally serving. Reaching out to one another. Galatians 5.13 Serve one another in love. This means to be Jesus with skin on. The love of Jesus is more than simply warm feelings and fuzzies. It's the cup of cold water. It's the clothing to those who are naked. It's food to those that are hungry. It's acceptance to those that are hurting. It's forgiveness to those that are bound. It's serving, reaching out, caring for one another. I'll tell you one last story this morning. True story. Powerful story of serving. And then we're done this morning. At the turn of the 20th century, there was an asylum in the suburbs of Boston which dealt with severely mentally retarded and disturbed individuals. One of the patients was a girl who was simply called Little Annie. She was totally unresponsive to others in the asylum. The staff tried everything they could to help her, yet without success. Finally, she was confined to a cell in the basement of the asylum and given up as hopeless. But a beautiful Christian woman worked at the asylum, and she believed that every one of God's creatures needed love, concern, and care. So she decided to spend her lunch hours in front of little Annie's cell, reading to her and praying that God would free her from her prison of silence. Day after day, the Christian woman came to little Annie's door and read, but the little girl made no response. Months went by, and the woman tried to talk with little Annie, but it was like talking to an empty cell. She brought little tokens of food for the girl, but they were never received. Then one day a brownie was missing from the plate, which the caring woman retrieved from little Annie's cell. Encouraged, she continued to read to her and pray for her. And eventually the little girl began to answer the woman through the bars of her cell. Soon the woman convinced the doctors that little Annie needed a second chance at treatment. And they brought her up from the basement and continued to work with her. And within two years, little Annie was told that she could leave the asylum and enjoy a normal life. But she chose not to leave. She was so grateful for the love and attention she was given by the dedicated Christian woman that she decided to stay and love others as she'd been loved. So little Annie stayed on at the institution to work with other patients who were suffering as she had suffered. 
Nearly half a century later, the Queen of England held a special ceremony to honor one of America's most inspiring women, Helen Keller. When asked to what she would attribute her success at overcoming the dual handicap of blindness and deafness, Helen Keller replied, if it hadn't been for Anne Sullivan, I wouldn't be here today. Anne Sullivan, who tenaciously loved and believed in an incorrigible blind and deaf girl named Helen Keller, was little Annie. Because one selfless Christian woman in the dungeon of an insane asylum believed that a hopeless little girl needed God's love, the world received the marvelous gift of Helen Keller. That is serving. What does it take to be that kind of Christian? What is needed to move us beyond our inconsequential, selfish, fleshly pursuits to deeds of loving service to God and others? What was the essence of Christian ministry which motivated Ann Sullivan's benefactress to such a significant ministry? It was that she knew that love came from God and therefore I must love one another. What if you only had one month to live? Love completely. Live the dash. We all have a birth date. We all have a death date. It's what we do in between that really counts. Live today in light of tomorrow. Love completely. Since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Next week, we have the privilege of hearing Dr. Moore Lee I heard him on Friday night uh, as he shared about the work going on in India. This is a physician who could be living in the most, um, you know, successful. He was a head of, in a, in, a, in a very successful hospital, head of the, the department of what he was working with, um, chose to go and give his life away to a tribal people who have no access to medical care and has established a clinic and out of that so many other things and they're in the process of preparing to build a mother-daughter unit. Next week is our missions offering. We're going to be giving towards that and the work of Evangel Ministries as they partner with John Varghese. I'm telling you, it is extraordinarily moving and you will not want to miss um, this. Even his testimony, he shared his testimony Friday night from a Hindu background, coming and being said, it's incredible how God met him and touched him and has transformed him. So that's next week in the, in the context, in the midst of this one month to live. And then on the 13th, which is, of course, um, Pentecost Sunday, we're going to learn to live passionately. And finally, on Labor Day, I'm sorry, on Memorial Day Sunday, leaving a legacy. And we've got a couple more great testimonies before us. And I'm just not going to want you to miss as we continue to learn together what would it mean, what does it mean to live life fully here and now. Well, we've received a powerful testimony today. Thank you again, Marie. We've received the word of the Lord. Let's respond as we close our service this morning. Please don't forget on your way out, we do want you to pick up goodies for mom. And this goes to a very good uh, cause with McAllister Christian Fellowship and Heifer International. Uh, We've been a part of that, our family, and it is a worthwhile and worthy goal to be a part of. So I encourage you 
to be a part of that and to give and uh, participate in that. Um, and finally, I just want to mention one other thing. Next Sunday night about the outpouring service. This is a year of restoration. The Lord's just put it in our hearts as a leadership team to have an evening specifically devoted to praying for restoration. We're going to be looking at Bartimaeus and the question the Lord asks him, what is it that you want me to do? So you'll be thinking about that and asking the Lord. And I believe there's going to be a powerful outflow of His presence and Spirit to meet you where you are at and to bring restoration in lives in so many different dimensions. All right, let's stand to our feet. And um, we're going to sing together about the deep, deep love of the Lord. And if you want to respond, I'm going to give a benediction in just a moment after we sing the song. But if you want to come to the altar, this morning I was reminded, you know, this altar was specifically designed to be the arms of God. And this morning at the end of our pre-service prayer time, I was over on that side, but I was praying right here because I just wanted to be right in the crook of His arm. And maybe this morning you just need to know afresh the love of God in your life. And I want you to know the fact is He does love you today. And then for that love to flow through your life to others. So um, come and receive this morning. And after we sing this through, I will give a prayer of benediction. But if you want to come and pray, come and pray. And others will come and pray with you. Here we go. Your deep, deep love. Mm-hmm.